0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis as we continue our study together. Genesis chapter 30. We'll be looking today at Genesis 30, 25 all the way through chapter 31, verse 16. Genesis 30, 25 to 31, 16. And you can find that on page 24 in the blue Bible, provided in the pew pocket in front of you if you don't have your own copy of God's Word. I encourage you to follow along with this interesting story, to say the least. I'll read it in a moment, but as we just sang, great is thy faithfulness, it reminds me that Some of our most beloved hymns are birthed out of the most fascinating backstories. Just think of A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther as he's on the run run from the Roman Empire who is trying to imprison him, try him for heresy, and it's in the gates of the protection of the castle at Wittenberg that he pins the famous hymn. And you're thinking, wow, what a cool song. (laughs) You could see just the emotion of that moment producing such a cool hymn. Another famous one uh, would be that of Horatio Spafford's It Is Well With My Soul. You've heard the story before, I'm sure. As he actually writes the song at the very spot over the Atlantic Ocean where his wife and children perished the year before. And it was in that moment that he could say, it is well with its soul. And then you come to great is thy faithfulness. And you would expect from this an amazing backstory. I mean, especially in light of the popularity of the song. But in fact, friends, it is frankly boring. It did not come from any dramatic moment. In fact, Thomas Chisholm, the guy who actually wrote the hymn, what, didn't even succeed as a pastor. He tried to do it for a few years, but health prevented him from being able to continue, and he eventually becomes an insurance salesman and writes this hymn. He he loved the Lord still, even though he couldn't serve in the ways that he originally intended, and so he would just faithfully write this poetry. A friend of his at Moody Bible Institute got a hold of this particular text, thought that it was beautiful and was determined to put it to music, and it was a relatively unpopular song until Billy Graham got a hold of it and started singing it in his crusades, and now everybody loves it. So what is it about this song that propelled it to popularity? Was it just Billy Graham? It's the lyrics themselves. It it doesn't need a cool backstory. It's got a great Message, one that celebrates the faithfulness of God, His ability to provide. And I have to say, you sang it this morning with vigor and gusto. But something weird happens when we step outside those doors. In here we sing Great is thy faithfulness, thy hand hath provided. And yet it seems like once we make it out the doors, through the parking lot, and about the time we make it to our car, it is as if we sang, great is my faithfulness, my hand hath provided. There are a couple of patterns of behavior that would reveal that we too much treasure our own contribution to our provision, one of those is, uh, frankly, pride. Uh, we will sing and hear, "Great is Thy faithfulness," but out there, it's all about our faithfulness because we make plans and we set goals as if it was totally up to us. There is no active and ongoing recognition that God must be intervening for us to be successful. I mean, it's the whole point behind a five-year plan. How many of you would actually present a five-year plan to your employees or to a board and put on the end, Deo Valente, if God wills? It is your job to make something happen. So we have five-year plans and one-year plans, and we have to-do lists, and we are enamored and fascinated with what we must do in any given week. And so here, yes, we'll acknowledge, yes, God, you're in control, we need your help. But out there, we know that it's ultimately up to us. But it's not just pride. Another indicator of our own misunderstanding of the source of success is also seen in worry or anxiety, which is like the perpetual experience of most Americans, this low to mid-grade worry that like the right stuff won't come in at the right time let let me make it this way Uh, remember those old Jeff Foxworthy jokes you might be a redneck if (laughs) let let me give you a spiritualized version you might be a warrior if you check your bank account more than you do your bible you ever get that way where it's just like you get nervous and it seems like there's, there's more month than there is money and you're just waiting for God to, to intervene in some way, but you know that you just got to keep an eye on that bank account, make sure everything's okay. Or you might be a warrior if you receive more joy from your portfolio or profit report than you do praise or prayer. Think about what really makes you happy. I mean, when are you, like, really in a good mood with your family? Like, when is everything awesome? When the money's in? And it seems like everything's going well, like, financially? Or is it when you've actually been able to spend the time in prayer and praise that you actually want it? I know many who develop that discipline of prayer and praise, but they're just as ornery with their children and angry with their spouses as if it had never taken place. Oh, but let, let a good tax refund come in, and now everything's amazing. Whose hand hath provided? It's, it's too easy for us to get the wires crossed and to misplace Like, our confidence in where our provision ultimately and finally comes from. And that's the point of this text. It straightens us out. It will remind us whose hand is really provided. See, we're studying the life of Jacob. And so far, we've seen God is in control of this man's fortune. I mean, from beginning, like before he was ever born, like in the womb, God was determined that he was going to bless this man. We see it in election. And yet, as he starts living out his life, Jacob actually thinks that his future is up to him. And so, he starts to practice deception. He's going to bring about the blessing of God in any way that he can control and manipulate. And so, he tricks his brother, he tricks his father, and there's some bitter fruit that will come from this. And yet, God still provides. Even at Jacob's most despicable moment, when he's on the run, God will show up in His sovereign grace and say, Hey, I know you've been despicable, but listen, I'm going to be with you anyway, and I'm still going to bless you. I'm still going to provide for you. And so, what we've seen in the last few weeks is God's determination to bless Jacob despite himself. And for God to fulfill the promise, two things need to take place. First, he needs a family. Right, Because he promised them that he'd have a family, and God provides a family. In fact, last week made it so clear, like from the very beginning and the very end, that Yahweh is the one that opens the womb. He's the one that provides the pinnacle blessing of children. It said it at the beginning, Yahweh opened Leah's womb. It said it at the end, Yahweh opened Rachel's womb. It was crystal clear that the blessing of family would ultimately have to come from God. But then you get to this text. And this text becomes a matter of not just provision of family, but provision of functional needs. He needs resources if he's going to survive and get back to his homeland. I mean, we're talking like the tangibles of life. He needs to modernize this money in the bank account. And so the question for us now as we continue to read the Jacob narrative is we know how God provides for the miracle of life. That's ultimately up to him. But what about the everyday? What about the normal day-to-day needs of life? Will God provide this as well? So listen out for this as we read the opening part of this story. See where the text places the emphasis. It may surprise you. Genesis chapter 30, beginning at verse 25. As soon as Rachel had born Jacob, Jacob said to Laban, Uh, Send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given to you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me. Were you a little before I came, and it has increased abundantly? And the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, What shall I give you? Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing it From it, every speckled and spotted sheep, and every black lamb, and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats, and the black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted and everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black and put them in the charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Now, here's where things get interesting, friends. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth, striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks and the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus, the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants, and male servants, and camels, and donkeys. Well, friends, uh, where does provision come from, according to this text? Well, there are a couple of perspectives that we'll see as the story unfolds. And it's a question that we should be asking our own selves. Not just where does Jacob's provision come from, but where does provision come for the people of God in general? And when we properly embrace the perspectives afforded us in this text, it will both correct our pride and our anxiety. The first perspective is seen in these verses that we just read. Chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. In a nutshell, our provision seems to come from human planning and effort. You read these verses, and it seems as if our provision comes from human planning and effort. I mean, you see Jacob in these opening, this opening scenario, like seeking this opportunity for provision. He is ready to move on. In, in verse 25, he says, Look, my, my, my finally, I've had a kid through the wife that I have chosen. Now is a good time for us to go. Remember, he's fulfilled his contract to Laban, 14 years of labor at least. And he's like, I want to get back home. He was always a homebody. And so he says, like, uh, send me on my way. Now, for those of you who like, think in American terms, you're just like, well, why doesn't he just leave? He can just leave whenever he wants. He's, he's his own man. He's, he's not really his own man, though. That's the problem. Because in this particular society, uh, Jacob has entrusted himself to Laban and put himself under him as the family head. And family in the ancient Near East is everything. Laban is the patriarch here. You weren't your own man at 18. You were your own man when the oldest man died. And so he is actually culturally bound to Laban. It is as if you could think of it this way. Laban is something of a feudal lord. The way that the laws and customs of that land work is for Jacob. If he really wants to leave and have the proper send-off, he has to have the blessing of Laban. You'll even see in the next chapter that Laban tells Joseph, I could have killed you. It was within my power to have killed you for sneaking off in this way, as he will eventually try to do. And so Jacob here wants a proper send-off. And so he goes to his father-in-law and says, hey, let me go. And and in this, the implication is that you'll give me what I need to get back to where I need to go. Let me go with my wives and my children and and help me get to the right destination. But Laban, he doesn't want that to happen. Laban's going to politely refuse the request in verses 27 and 28. Notice he says, He treats Jacob here with respect. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination. By the way, that means exactly what you think it means. (laughs) Laban is a pagan, friends. Don't think that he was some kind of a Christian. Uh, Laban has been trying to figure out, man, what is going on? Why am I so successful with this guy? And he uses whatever dark arts were available to him at the time. And guess what? Yahweh worked in spite of that and said, hey, just in case you want to know, it was ultimately me who was blessing you through this guy. Reminding us as readers ultimately of that promise that had been made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that these guys wouldn't only receive personal blessing, but they would be the means by which the nations would be blessed. And so here, Laban learns this by God showing up in these dark arts and saying, you know what, surprise, (laughs) it's actually me working through him And Laban does not want to lose his good luck charm. You know what those are, right? Like the lucky rabbit's foot? You know, when you've got a hold of that thing, some people superstitiously believe that everything goes a little better. A four-leaf clover, a horseshoe. Like, this is what he sees Jacob as. Like, when Jacob is around, good things happen. I don't want him to go. So Laban counter-offers and says, Hey, if you please, why don't you stay on my payroll? And I'll pay you anything. He says it again. Name your wages. How do you like that contract? I mean, wouldn't you love to be sitting at the negotiation table and the person says, I don't care. I'm in a desperate spot. I will pay you whatever you want. Provision, at this point, could have been a blank check for him. And yet Jacob knows that this is not what God ultimately has for him. He still wants to get back to his home country. So he turns down the blank check. He actually tells Laban, no, this isn't going to work. And notice how he responds to him in verses 29 to 33. Jacob said, you yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock have fared with me for you a little before I came and it has increased abundantly But here's where things get interesting. Notice Jacob seems to be missing some theology here because he knows that Yahweh's in control for other people, but he seems to forget that Yahweh's in control for him. Read carefully. And the Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant name of God, has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own house also? Do you see what's going on here? Jacob is actually acknowledging, like, hey, look, I know that you are blessed because God is blessing through me. But then he asks this question, and it's almost nonsensical. How am I going to be able to provide for my house? And before you get too hard on him, I think every one of you in the room know what it's like. You will tell somebody else, hey, just trust the Lord. You know he's going to provide until it's you that can't pay the bills. And that's exactly where Jacob is at this moment. He knows that the blessing works for Laban, but he is forgetting that this would work for him too. And so he tells Laban, look, I still need something from you. So Laban is, I mean, Jacob is going to place himself under the the manipulative control of this egomaniac Laban once more. He's going to put himself in his service because he thinks, I've, I've got to have some provision to get back. And, and notice how this deal plays out. He gets to ask anything, and, and Jacob decides to keep it modest. And he says, again, look at verse 31. Laban says to him, What shall I give you? What do you want? Just name, name your wages. Just tell me, what do I need to keep you here? And Jacob said, You shall not give me anything. <laughs> uh, he remembered, by the way, what happened to him last time Laban gave him a gift. And it was the ugly wife that he never wanted. So he says, look, I don't want any of your gifts. Uh, How about this? Let's work it out this way. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. And you know Laban's saying, yes, anything, please. And basically, Jacob asked in verse 32, I want the odd-colored animals. I'm not going to keep saying speckled and spotted and mottled the whole sermon. I'm going to say odd-colored animals. He wants the odd-colored animals, those rare, genetic, uh, just like offshoots. Uh, Imagine it this way. If you, let's say that he ran a a dog breeding business, he would want the albino puppies. Now, the the chances of getting the off-colored animal are are like minimal. And they may be like really small. And he says, look, I'm not going to take a single thing from you. I just want all the odd-colored animals that will be born from this point forward. Laban, like a shrewd corporate lawyer, is thinking, yes, let's sign this thing right now before we can negotiate the fine print. He wants to trap Joseph in this because at this rate, I mean, like as rare as it is to get one of these odd-colored animals, he's thinking, I'll have him here for the rest of his life. And so they sign the contract. He says, good, I want this. Yes, let's, let's do this. And Jacob then agrees to work hard. But what Jacob is expecting, it seems, is a little bit of, uh, pardon the business term here, some venture capital. He's expecting a chance to have like a startup. And what Jacob wants is just some of the odd colored animals on his own because they have that recessive gene which would increase the chances of producing more odd-colored animals. But before the ink is dry on the contract, Laban already goes out to the field himself before Jacob can and takes away all of the odd-colored animals, gives them to his sons, and then sends them three days away. So now Jacob has to start off with zero capital. He is starting off with a set of flocks that are all normally colored, and from this, he has to figure out how to get odd-colored animals. I mean, it is a rough scenario to be in. And yet Jacob will roll up his sleeves and get to work with the best science and technology available to him. That's the best way I can say it. Then comes that weird section, the outworking of provision. What what does it look like for, for Jacob then to begin to provide? And this is what I want you to see, friends. We have these moments in Genesis where God's name just will evaporate from the narrative. You don't see it anymore. This is one of those. You're going to see some weird stuff in these few verses, but guess what you won't see? You won't see a divine explanation behind anything. The operative individual in these few verses is Jacob did this, and Jacob did that, and he did this, and he did that. And then at the end it will say, the man increased greatly. Notice what happens here, it's, it's kind of strange, and I'm not even going to read it all over again, I'm just going to try to summarize it. Phase one of Jacob's little plan to provide for himself is, he needs the flock of the right color. So he needs a certain color goat, he needs a certain color lamb. And he he thinks he figures out a way to do this. Now, (laughs) you need to be aware that most of us have zero clue what is going on here. Some people have tried to explain this. I'm not kidding. Some people have tried to explain this scientifically. There are journal articles written in which they would say that the chemicals released from these particular plants in the water would have made the sheep fertile or I read another one this week, it just blew my mind, that, that there actually is some evidence out there that what you see before you participate in the, the sexual event that will bring about life will actually like make its way to the embryo, determining its color. And I'm thinking, do we not have a better explanation than this? <laughs> All right, so let's just go ahead and like debunk the science of it. Uh, what we have here is superstition, friends, at least from Jacob's perspective. Remember the mandrakes we talked about last week? It was a folk remedy. This was just something that was popular in that culture that they thought could actually affect the successful outcome of the color of an animal. And so he takes what's popular in the day and tries to employ that method to the best of his knowledge. And, and kind of like the mandrakes, there was no way to prove or disprove this. Kind of like you taking Ginkgo Bilboa or whatever, like for your memory. Like you don't know if it's working. By the way, I got that stuff one time, and you have to remember to take it three times a day, like three pills three times a day, and you, they win no matter what, because if you remember to take the pills three times a day, you're thinking, oh, my memory's better. And then if you forget to take them, or they're like, well, you should have taken the pills. <laughs> That's kind of what's going on here. How is Jacob going to be able to prove, you know, that the stick thing doesn't work? Because sometimes odd-colored animals happen. It's superstition. And, and, and I, I joke around about the ginkgo because we all have these superstitions that seem normal to us, things that we count on. Look, you go where I was raised in eastern North Carolina and you tell somebody not to plant their garden by the farmer's almanac. And you see what happens. Those are fighting words. They can't prove it and they don't know how, but they know that some way the moon has something to do with the production of their tomato plants but you can't disprove it. And so Jacob uses the means that are available to him. And and the ruse is kind of simple. He takes the sticks, he peels the bark on these things, he puts them in the water. The idea is that when they're down drinking the water, they see these stripes, and supposedly this has an effect on the color of the animals at conception. But as much as we would say that his success was supernatural, the text actually gives Joseph the credit for being ingenious. It doesn't say that God did it, but it happened. Jacob succeeds. Phase one, he gets the right colored animals. Remember, he had none. So now he's got a bunch of the right colored animals. You know what phase two of his plan is? To crossbreed the strong animals. So now that he's got the color that he needs, this part is scientific. You can tell, any of you who know animals well, you could tell a sick one from a strong one. (laughs) I mean, this guy's been working with, with sheep his entire life. He knows the difference between the sick, and the strong. And so guess what? Anytime the strong were at the the breeding place with the water, he'd set out the sticks. Anytime the weak were there, he would take the sticks away. And so over the course of about six years, Jacob accumulates for himself a pretty substantial income to the degree that he can barter these animals off, and he gets some like first-class items for his own little portfolio. I mean, look down at the very end of this chapter. It says that, "...thus The man increased greatly and had large flocks. And listen, he was able to sell these flocks to get employees. Female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. Camels especially were a luxury in that day. Um, Again, southern phrase. He's eating high on the hog. Like, he's getting the best out of this thing. Like, he has worked hard. And for all intents and purposes, when you try to review what's going on here, you're thinking like, wow. What a great businessman. Here's a guy who pulled himself up by his own bootstraps and made something out of nothing. Like, this is the classic American story. I mean, you would watch this documentary. And if we stop the story right here, if we stop it right here, which most of my kind preachers do, you end up with a kind of a, a weird... But seemingly natural application, I'm going to do something in the name of irony, and it'll last for about two minutes, but I'm giving you the warning ahead of time, and then I'll come back to our normal presentation of the text. Here's the way, if we stopped it right here, an American application of this text would usually work. There would be an illustration. In this case, why don't I use Truett Cathy? the founder of Chick-fil-A. Everybody loves Chick-fil-A. And so we know how successful Truett's been. In fact, he wrote it in a book. How would you do it, It. And you, you follow his story, and he actually will explain to all the, the kids that come up through his program, hey, if you want to be successful, you want to know what success is, he says, you need to remember this mantra. Are you ready for it? If it's to be, it's up to me. If it's to be, it's up to me. So what's the Chick-fil-A way? Well, it is self-initiative. It is you putting your best foot forward. And so if you want something in life, you need to go get it. You need to take it. I mean, we know all this stuff about Jacob receiving the promise of God and that he would ultimately provide. But let's be honest, friends. We all know deep down in our hearts that God helps those who what? Yeah. I mean, after all, isn't that what Paul said? He says the person who does it work shouldn't eat. It is up to you. There is a measure in which you are responsible for your own provision. If you don't have enough, don't go crying to Jesus about it. You better get smarter, faster, and better. All right. Time in. Is that not the way that it would normally flow? There is some sense in which Jacob exercises responsibility here. But friends, listen to me carefully, please. We cannot divorce this little story from the rest of the narrative. This is why context matters so much when you're reading your Bible. First of all, there's the preceding context in which God already told Jacob that he would have everything that he needed. Even when his name doesn't show up in the narrative, we already know that he's the one that's making it happen. But then we also have following context which will provide a beautiful explanation of the seemingly supernatural events that we've come to in this text so perspective one on provision is that our provision comes from human planning and effort and indeed it seems that that's the case but there's another perspective that's offered here in verses one through 16 of the next chapter and that is that our provision comes from divine initiative and oversight So there is one sense in which provision comes from human planning and effort, but there will be another sense in which provision comes from divine initiative and oversight. Look at verses 1 through 3. The same story continues. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's he has gained his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So, what's going on here? The money's been made. Jacob is rolling in it. He has his camels, he has his servants. Things are good, but he has, friends, worn out his welcome. (laughs) Uh, It is now becoming like the talk of the village that he is somehow robbing Laban, even though he's honoring the terms of the contract that were given him. And the text even says that not only are the sons talking about it, but it says that Laban's disposition has changed toward Joseph. You you know that feeling, right? I mean, Jacob. You know that feeling where you thought you were good with somebody, and then all of a sudden they start looking at you a little different. Something's off. And remember, Laban is the patriarch. He's the one that has all the power. He could have Jacob killed if he wants to. He rules the roost here. And so, Jacob is being threatened now, and God at this point intervenes in a dream, and he says, all right, Jacob, you've made enough money, it's time to go. Don't worry, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Now, that's about the future travel. But now, you need to get what's happening, because Jacob needs to convince his ornery wives that they need to leave the protection of their father and go with him to a land that they've never been before. I mean, think about it from a woman's perspective. Things are good. You're making a good salary right now. Like, Why would we like, put ourselves in this threatening position to go to somewhere else like across the world that we've never been to before? And he's got two women telling him this. And in this, he actually is going to explain why he is so confident that they should leave. And what you'll see is a radical change from what was presented in the earlier verses. Jacob is going to appeal to his wives that it's time to go because he sees, he looks back and sees that it was God who had provided for them. Notice his argument to his wives in verses 4 through 9. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, remember that was far away, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. <laughs> you know that I have served your father with all my strength, that your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. That's just hyperbole. He's saying, like, he's always changing the contract. But God did not permit him to harm me. Notice that God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flocks bore striped. Thus, notice the emphasis, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. What is the textual explanation behind Jacob's apparent rise in success and prosperity? He knows that it was God who was doing that. He says, God took it away from your father. God is the one who gave it to me. Come on, ladies, trust me here, God is with me. God has given us this kind of success. And he will not only tell them that, but the question then comes, where did Jacob get this understanding? Because in the previous text, you remember? He was the one that was so worried that God blesses other people, but he doesn't know if he can provide for himself. We have a somewhat fearful Jacob in the last chapter. Now, all of a sudden, here he has confidence, and you're wondering, well, what changed? Jacob will explain. Look at how his perspective changes in verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, when he was up to his little schemes, he says, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats mated with the flock, that mated with the flock, were striped, spotted, and mottled. Now, pause there. I just have to say this is kind of a weird dream. I don't think I've ever dreamed of animals mating. And yet, Jacob does. And you know what it's like he's dreaming? It's like he's dreaming of a windfall. Friends, you just think, you know, animal husbandry is weird because not many of you do it. But this is cash in the bank. I mean, you need to imagine yourself dreaming of winning the jackpot. I know you shouldn't have played it, but let's say that you put that quarter in on accident. And you won, and you dreamed about it, right? Uh, this is somebody who is, like, dreaming about, like, walking across the stage as the valedictorian. This is somebody who is dreaming about holding up the state championship trophy. I mean, this is the equivalent of what he's dreaming about. So he's having this pleasant dream about, like, his prosperity expanding here. And then you get to verse 11, and it says, Then, as he's thinking about this windfall of cash, the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, And I said, Here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted and mottled. Why are they that way? Why is it that you're succeeding? For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Why are you successful, Jacob? Why is it that you've experienced this windfall? Because of my compassion. And then verse 13. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land, and return to the land of your kindred. Do you remember what happened at Bethel? You just go back a couple chapters, God shows up and says, I will be with you, I will provide for you, and then Jacob, when he's announcing, after he anoints that little pillar, he's announcing what he understood that to mean, and he says, I know that God will keep me safe, and that God will provide for me. And what do we have here? God keeping him safe and God providing for him. It it wasn't his own ingenuity. It wasn't his effort. It wasn't his initiative. It was ultimately the sovereign provision of God Almighty as revealed in this dream. And he doesn't come to this conclusion alone. Even his two wives, who have been anything but godly up to this point, concede that God is at work here. Look at verse 14. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? They're acknowledging here that they've been mistreated. He says, For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. Now, time out. That may be a weird phrase for you. Like, In what way has he devoured their money? Can I give you just one more insight into ancient Near Eastern marriage? that bride wealth, which is the technical term, or bride price that the groom would normally pay, it wasn't so that the the dad could get rich. It was basically an insurance policy. The the guy would come up with the money, he would give it to the dad. You know what the dad would do? He would then take the money and give it to her, not to the husband, but to her as a dowry. It it, it was her, her means of financial protection if anything ever happened to the husband. But you know what Laban did with... 14 years worth of Jacob's labor, he devoured it. He spent their inheritance on himself. They now have no financial security if anything happens to Jacob. They have been sold by him, and then the money that he got for them, he had spent himself. This is a wicked man. They have been mistreated, and notice how they find refuge despite this mistreatment. Verse 16 All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Do you see the second perspective? Do you see where provision ultimately comes from? Yes, it seems that it comes from human planning and initiative. But you continue to read the text and you notice that our provision comes from divine initiative and oversight. And so Jacob's planning and his effort and his scheming is all put into perspective. There is a divine hand behind the success up to this point. And so if God were to ask Jacob or even the nation of Israel as they would read this text in days future, Whose hand hath provided? They're not saying my hand. They would concede on the authority of God's word that thy hand hath provided. Every time we needed it, Lord, you were the one that came through. When I was an adolescent, I used to watch this show, um, that, that came on that basically exposed magic tricks. Uh, the guy uh, who did it, he always wore a mask, uh, and like the reason he did that is because like, he thought that the other magicians in the trade would be angry at him for revealing all their secrets. And so he never revealed himself. But it was a fascinating show because what would happen is in the first part of the show, what you would see is the mind-blowing magic trick. I mean, it was done with all the music and the gravitas and the solemnity. I mean, he he did it all, you know, sawing people into multiple pieces, making huge pieces of farm equipment disappear, like living in a block of ice for three weeks. I mean, like, you, you would just, like, see all this stuff and you would think, like, wow, this is amazing. You know what the second half of the show was? It was the same thing from a different camera angle. It would switch the camera angle from the back. You were watching the exact same recording, except now you could see all the wires, and you could see all the tricks, and you could see all the things, the sleight of hand, the mirrors, everything that was going on. You just knew, like, oh, that's amazing. Now I see how this was really happening. You got the full perspective. Friends, if you think, that it is your creativity and your ingenuity and your work ethic that's getting it done. You've been fooled. You're just watching it from the point of view of the crowd. You know what this text does? It just turns the camera angle around so that you can see where God has put you up to this point. How He has been the one Pulling the strings and providing the stuff at all the right times. Uh, This is something that that Jacob and the children of Israel would need to constantly hold on to. Yeah, they would fight battles and yes, they would gather manna, but the manna would come from God and the victory would ultimately belong to him as well. This text doesn't excuse human means. It's just explaining them in the context of God's ultimate provision for his people. Moses narration, again, does point to the human point of view. There is some trying involved in our provision. Provision does, in some sense, come from human planning and effort. Moses doesn't stop there. He will continue to write under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, providing us the second and truer perspective from the preceding context and from the context in chapter 31, that we not only try, but we must trust, because provision ultimately comes from divine initiative and oversight. So what does this do for us practically? When you grasp this perspective, I think first and foremost, this will cultivate within your heart humility. Humility. There there should be a sense in which you look at what you have, especially in the United States of America, in the 21st century, when our economy is as strong as it has ever been. And you need to think, it wasn't Trump's hand that provided. It wasn't your hand that provided. It's been God that has provided. He has been abundantly kind to both the righteous and the unrighteous. The just and the unjust and so the scriptures regularly will remind us as we look back on the past like first Corinthians 4 7 Paul will say what have you been given he said what is it that you have that you did not first receive you think oh no, no, no no you don't understand Justin I worked hard I did this I took advantage of that opportunity I took that risk who made that risk available to you where did you get those resources and know-how in the first place James, the brother of Jesus, would warn us about how to speak about our success. In James chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, just listen. He says to them, Come now, you who say, tomorrow, today or tomorrow, we will go into such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, here's, friends, where this gets practical. Here's how you ought to speak about your success. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Friend, God has blessed many of you you're here today, you're properly clothed, I don't see anyone starving to death. How do you explain that? From the sovereign hand of God. And it should come across, James says, in the way that we speak. Where we acknowledge that it ultimately came from Him. And let people laugh at you. They're going to say, well, God may have provided that for you, but I know I got this for myself. It's exactly, James knows that people are going to speak that way, but God's people speak, giving him the credit for everything good that has happened in their life. And so a text like this humbles us, but it not only cultivates humility, but it also cultivates hope. Because even though I can look around the room and see that everyone's properly clothed and it doesn't look like anyone's starving, many of you know acute, and desperate need. It could be emotional. It could be financial. It could be physical. And you're thinking, I have no clue how in the world I'm going to be able to do the stuff that God wants me to do. And you know what? This is where the Scripture reading text for today comes so strongly. Jesus says his followers in Matthew 6, 25 to 34, listen, don't worry, don't be anxious, remember that he provides for the birds, remember he provides for the flowers, remember that he is in control of this, and you know what his solution is, because like you get through the text and you're reading it and you're like, okay, thank you, Jesus, I know that I shouldn't be anxious, but how do I fix this? And he gives the first positive command at the end of the passage, which is this, but seek first the kingdom of God. See, the reason why you experience such acute anxiety and pressure and stress is because you're living for the kingdom of self. It's a sure sign. But when you know that you work for God, you know that you're taken care of. um, I've always worked for people. But just a few uh, months ago, I read a book recommended by one of our church members about uh, the plights and privileges of owning your own business. It's called A Company of One. Fantastic little read. You know, one of the things that that book opened my eyes to, because many of you in this room could feel this and you know this. like You think, man, if I just owned my own business, things would be so much better. (laughs) Now it's all up to you. People who switch over to self employment, like working for themselves, they long for the days <laughs> when somebody else was responsible for taking care of their insurance and somebody else was signing their paycheck. You know what Jesus is saying here? Stop working for yourself. Be gone with, with the illusion of self employment and come work for me. As you work for me, the benefits are good. And the pay is consistent. I will take care of what you need. You know what, practically, friends, if you're living for the kingdom of God, you've submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what you can be sure of. And I've told myself this hundreds of times through the last few years, and I pray it will be of help to you. God has given you enough resources for what He wants you to do. God has given you enough resources to do whatever it is He wants you to do. You could fill in resources with time, with money, with energy. God has given you enough time to do what He wants you to do. He's given you enough money to do what He wants you to do. He's given you enough energy to do what He wants you to do. Listen, friends, but the the, the, conditional is what He wants you to do. You may not have the resources to do everything that you and your selfish flesh want to accomplish, but if he wants you to do it, you've got enough. And you need to rest in it. And you know what the text is saying? You've got enough. Jacob was trying to make it from point A to point B. He needed to get back to the promised land. You know what God told him three different times in this text? Just go, I've got you covered. Whatever it is that the Lord is calling us to do uh, in our own personal growth, in regard to our family, and, it, and seeing the kingdom of God expand to the nations, like we've got enough to do what He wants us to do. If. God is our Father and Christ is our King. And I close here. Man, if. It's only two letters, but it's just such a big word. Because I don't want anyone to walk out of this place today thinking like, awesome, I'm covered, if Christ is not your king and God is not your father. See, you understand that the reason why Jacob experienced this is not just because he was living and breathing, but because God in his special grace intervened and showed up and said, I will bless you, you will be in a relationship with me. The normal pagan on the street didn't get to claim this promise. Jacob was able to claim this promise because he was in a special relationship with God. Friends, none of us in this room, preacher included, enjoy at birth some special relationship with God. In fact, we're born in sin and we've rebelled against Him and we've tried to run things our own way for our entire lives. And you know what, we don't naturally experience the favor of God, we actually experience His frown and His frustration. His righteous wrath will be poured out against those who have characteristically rebelled against Him, and yet that is why Jesus came, that's why this matters so much because he came and lived and died to pay for that rebellion, to to offer that reconciliation. Like His resurrection was like proof positive that Jesus had done everything that was needed for us to be fully reconciled to God. And if we would just repent of our sin, turn from our sin, and rely on him and trust in Jesus Christ alone, we now can be assured, God is my Father. There's nothing between me and him. Christ is my King. I am living for him and He will give me whatever I need for that. And so, friends, if you are in Christ, this is good news for you today. And if you're not, I pray, I beg, that you would turn from yourself and trust in Him alone today. So as we leave these doors today, what will be the true song of your heart? Great is my faithfulness or great is thy faithfulness? Let's close in prayer. I want to pray briefly for you. And if you truly believe that God is your Father and that Christ is your King. When we sing in just a moment, I would encourage you to sing with us in response. Father, for all who are here today, or who, who sit before me, I pray that you would work in their heart and that you would provide assurance and peace and comfort to those who know you as Lord and Savior, that, that they would leave this place with confidence and humility, and that you would work through this church in such a mighty way that people would see or the difference that you've made, that you would get the glory for all that you've provided. And for those who have been in this room today and have yet to submit to you who are still trying to secure their own provision for this life and for the life to come, or convince them of their need. Or may they understand their spiritual condition before you, not just understand it, but abhor it and, and long or to turn to you, or give them eyes to see, ears to hear a mouth to confess that Jesus is Lord. And through both of these things, we trust that you will be honored as our ultimate provider in Jesus' name.